Kelly Brenner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you are a very interesting person. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that because I've been following you on Twitter now for almost a year. And you've published some really cool tweets, mostly related to nature, to, uh, to what you found in nature, to the fact that you've written a book that I actually ended up buying because of your Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm just curious, you're a writer, is that what you do for a living? Yes, you could call it that. <laughs> okay, and what kind of content do you write? Uh, well, the book, and then I do a little bit of freelance writing, and then I also have my own website where I write um, a field journal and then just various articles on different natural history topics, and then um, that's partly support supported by a Patreon account that I have. Okay, and see, this is one of the reasons why I said you're very interesting is because you're not just interesting because you're a naturalist and you write about nature, but just the fact that you're, you know, you do this full time, you you are active online, uh, you help people learn about science, about nature and things like that. I find that absolutely fascinating. So I want to get started and I want to find out, like, how did you even get into this field? <laughs> well, it's... It's interesting. So when I was little, of course, I was into nature because most kids are at that age. Um, I was lucky enough to have um, some property up in the Columbia River Gorge between Oregon and Washington. And we spent a lot of time up there, you know, in childhood, catching bugs and snakes and stuff. So uh, that was always with me. And then when I decided to go to school, um, I got a degree in landscape architecture. And instead of learning how to design, you know, like campuses and things that I thought were kind of boring, I focused more on urban habitat and how to design um, habitat to attract nature to the city, you know, where people live. Um, but when I graduated, it was 2006. And so nobody was hiring. In fact, most of the firms were laying people off. So I started writing about that interest instead. And it just kind of blossomed from there. <laughs> Okay. And so essentially, as you said, you, you started exploring in nature when you were a kid. Did you have a tree house? No, we didn't. Um, we, we had, um, I had a, you know, a city yard, which didn't have a whole lot, but up at our property, we had, um, we, we took our trailer up there every summer and spent the summer up there. And we had, um, I don't think you have them in your part of the country, but vine maples, when vine maples grow in the wild, they, um, they kind of sprout from the the trunk, the base, into several different really long, and they don't sprout up, they kind of sprout out. So they, you can jump on them and they, they don't break because they're very bendy. And so, I mean, we had a kind of a natural tree house, I guess. <laughs> cool. And this is in uh, the Seattle region? Yeah, this is in, um, down on the Columbia River Gorge. So between Oregon and Washington, kind of to the east um, of the Pacific is uh, the gorge, which is, um, created by the floods, the, the Missoula floods, um, back in the, you know, the time of the glaciers. And it kind of sculpted out a whole, this big landscape of the Columbia River Gorge. So it's a kind of a really magical place to get to explore. Wow, that sounds really cool. And so I guess you've always been in that area. Yeah. Have you ever, ever lived elsewhere in, in the United States? No, just uh, Portland area. And then I went to school down in, in the Willamette Valley um, in Eugene. Uh, which is a completely different uh, ecosystem. And then up here to Seattle, which is, you know, different again. So it's all the same region, but it's all pretty different sorts of habitats to, to live in. So, but yeah, That's just the Northwest. <laughs> okay. So um, you do document a lot about uh, the nature in your area in the Northwest. Do you also document nature or creatures when you travel? Yes. <laughs> uh, Last year, we before all this, you know, pandemic stuff, we got to go to Finland, which I love. It's one of my favorite countries. And yeah, I wrote on my blog every day <laughs> that I went. I did like a little mini um, solo tour of some of the national parks there. And um, I spent a day at each park by myself, just wandering around and then taking copious amounts of pictures. And then I wrote on that on my blog, too. So I, I keep a field journal um, on my blog. So it's not just local, but also whenever I travel, I always document that, too. Do you want to share the name and the URL for your blog? Yeah, it's metrofieldguide.com, M-E-T-R-O, um, -E like metropolitan. Um, yeah, so metrofieldguide.com. Okay, very cool. And I also understand that you're a photographer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was. Um, something good about that? <laughs> well, that started way back in high school, um, many, many years ago. I was doing the photography for yearbook and just got interested in cameras. Um, and it just kind of escalated from there. <laughs> 
And of course you photograph nature. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a macro lens, which is my most commonly used lens. It works also, it's 200 millimeters, so it works really well for birds too. But by far what I focus on most of is invertebrates. So I take it, to, I never go to the beach without it. I always take it to the beach, the bugs in the backyard, um, slime molds, anything. I love the tiny things. Um, to photograph and then i recently got an underwater kind of point and shoot camera so i've been experimenting with that now too in my pond and at the beach very cool and i know that you've written for some publications i have read your bio online uh, but with uh, photography and a, a talent for writing it also really translates well to just doing it yourself online don't you find yeah yeah and when i when i do freelancing or if somebody interviews me um I, my photographs often go with those pieces too, but it's also very useful for my own website to have um, not just like the field journals, but also when I write, write about something, like I have a series about uh, urban plants, um, profiles for urban plants. And I just happen to have a catalog of, you know, thousands of photos and, and, and I tag them. Everything is documented um, meticulously about where I saw it, what it is, so I can find it again. Um, and so I use them, yeah, a lot on my website for, different various uses or just reference photos or yeah there's countless things I do with my photos yeah and I guess one of the things I want to talk about just real quick here before we get to your book and asking you a bunch of questions about nature itself I am curious <laughs> um again about this uh this ability that you've had to translate this into a into an online career of sorts do you do you find it uh difficult to do this uh, do you find it difficult to you know, uh, find the discipline or the right habits to, uh, you know, to do your own content, to write your own books. I mean, writing a book is a huge endeavor. I know I <laughs> I started working on one and it is hard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it'd be much easier to just have a simple job, you know, like I used to have in an office years ago because writing a book is one thing, but it really doesn't bring in much money. Well, nothing I do brings in much money, to be honest. But I, I just, I don't know, I guess I'm a creator and I just like to have different things. And I have an idea and I'm like, I want to do that. And so I, I feel like I often space myself a little bit too thin sometimes. I've got these Invertifest going. I've got a new to Brink Appreciation Society. I've got my website. I've got two other books I'm trying to research. <laughs> yeah, it gets a bit, um, especially now, it gets a bit overwhelming to figure out where to you know, focus my energy on any given day. So you've got a lot on the go then. Yeah. <laughs> did you uh did you grow up in a family that encouraged you to do to be self-sufficient or to you know to pursue your your interests and your hobbies? It's a good question. I don't know. I mean, they didn't tell me to like shoot for my dreams or anything. It was much more practical family than that, I think. Um so no, not entirely. I think that was mostly my own probably my autistic mind. <laughs> <laughs> do what I want. <laughs> Yeah, I think we have we can relate on that one. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, okay, so let's let's move let's move beyond that then. The uh, nature. I <laughs> I have a bunch of questions because I see a lot of posts on Twitter. Uh, again, your your posts are fantastic. Do you want to share your the the name of your Twitter account? Oh yeah, it's just my name, Kelly Brenner. Easy. <laughs> Excellent. Quick question. What is a slime mold? <laughs> slime molds are very tricky. They, they're they not related to anything else. They are their own kingdom. And so they're not fungus. They're not, um, they're not animal, which they, a lot of um, the old explorers thought they were at the beginning. I thought they were animal because they move. So they're their own little kingdom and they function very similarly to a fungus. Um, but they, they, in their growth stage, the plasmodium, they grow. And they don't just like grow like a tree where they, you know, sp sprout out the top. They actively move. So when it when they eat up the food in one part of a log, they just keep oozing across it. And then they, when they mature, they turn into something that is similar in shape to a mushroom. Um, it has like it often has a stalk and then like an, an orb on the top. And then when it dries out, the it opens up, and the spores are released um, into a new generation of slime molds. So if you were to describe it for our listeners, what does a slime mold actually look like? If it's in the growth stage, it's usually white or yellow, um, slimy and lots of tendrils kind of creeping across. But we don't see that form very often because it's usually under leaves or under, you know, bark. Um, they're very small generally. And 
that mostly go overlooked, which is why I carry a little pocket flashlight with me all the time, especially in the forest, because they like to grow in the dark forest. And they're they're small. They can either be like little orbs, and they usually grow in, in a big um, clump, of a big mass, the same kind all together. They can be yellow. They can be white, translucent. Um, some are iridesc iridescent, uh, like blue and and some look like little champagne flutes. Their forms are very different. And when their spores explode, it's kind of like little fireworks. Um, and some are bright pink. I mean, they're, they're very diverse, but they're all very, very small um, and very much overlooked. When you say spores, does this mean that they're related to mushrooms? No, they're, they're, they're not related. They just have a similar um, growth form where they you know, shoot off spores, but so do um, ferns, a lot of different things that are unrelated. Um, produce spores and different sorts of life cycles. Okay, and I just want to be clear for everybody, you're not a scientist. You just happen to know all this stuff because you researched it, right? Right, right. Yeah, no, I'm, I call myself a naturalist. Um, so I don't have a science degree. I have, yeah, I just spent a lot of time out in nature, observing, documenting, reading, researching. Yep. You're kind of, a, you remind me a bit of Jane Goodall before she, you know, uh, I read that she had been selected to go research chimpanzees because I forget his name, the the man who chose her. I, I forget don't know. his name. Yeah. But he chose her to go study uh, chimpanzees be not because she was a scientist, she wasn't. She was actually just an administrator, but mm -hmm. she had these this meticulous way of, you know, of doing notation and and researching her subjects and he found that very very uh interesting. And so he sent her to research uh, chimpanzees. And now, I mean, look at her now. Right. <laughs> so I find it very interesting that she also started out as a naturalist. So a naturalist, just for to be clear with people, uh, is not a categorically a scientist, but is someone who happens to know a lot about nature. Right. Is somebody, yeah, somebody who just studies nature as a whole. And as science, I mean, like back in the old days, you think of like Darwin and all the early explorers, they were... I mean, they were naturalists. They studied a whole range of things. They weren't just focused on one specific thing. Um, but science now is so compartmentalized. It's like you study not just rotifers, but one little aspect of it. And so scientists don't often see the big picture, where I think um, ecologists and naturalists tend to see the, the patterns in nature. They tend to see all the connections and like kind of the big picture. So I think it's an important field, even though it's not an official you know, science. Uh, for people to, you know, undertake. A hundred percent agree with you. It's a, it is a definitely something that is often overlooked is the studying of the big picture. Mm -hmm. So this is exactly what you've described it as. Uh, and I'm glad that you mentioned ecologists in there too. Yeah. And a lot of my um, landscape architecture degree, I focus on ecology because, you know, you want the big picture. You don't want to just design it for you know, chipmunks or squirrels or whatever, but you need to create a habitat that's going to encompass the whole ecosystem. Um, you, you attract one thing, you know, it's not a very good ecosystem because you need to have that big picture of all the different, how everything interacts together. And you I mean, you don't, you don't have trees for squirrels and you're not going to have the food source. So you have to think of all those different pieces. I actually like that you had a chapter on that in your book about how everything is connected. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that was that was really good. Uh, before I get to that, though, I wanted to ask you, and I think you've pronounced it differently than how I've been pronouncing it my whole life. You, I pronounce this word nudibranch, but it's not, is it? Yeah, it's nudibrank. Nudibrank. See, this yeah. is what happens when you're a voracious reader, but you never actually have to say the word. Yep. No, I have. This, I've been terrified of doing all my book talks and interviews and I'm going to say things wrong because I hardly ever talk out loud. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, can you explain to us what is a nudibrank? Nudibranks are the coolest creatures in the world. They're, um, <laughs> you wouldn't know it to look at them, but they are slugs. So they're sea slugs. They're not all nudibranks, uh, or not all sea slugs are nudibranks, but all nudibranks are sea slugs. There's different kinds of sea slugs. Nudibranks are one division. And they, um, they live in water and you can find them at low tide. And they are the, the most glorious colors and shapes. Some are like translucent, some are bright orange. They come in pretty much every color. They're all carnivores. Um, they eat rhizoa or sea anemones. Um, and you can't show somebody a nudibranch without them going, wow, because they're just, just amazingly beautiful and 
stunningly gorgeous. They have gills um, on their backsides around their butts. <laughs> and they look like these dainty feather lacy, you know, things. And they're just, they're just incredible animals. And you live near the ocean, right? I mean, you have access to these. Yeah, in Seattle, we're right on Puget Sound. And so I can go right to the beach, um, I mean, just a few minutes away. And I do it all the time for low tide and go look for, well, I look for everything, of course, but, you know, especially nudibranchs. <laughs> They're clear, clearly your favorite. You can hear it in your voice. <laughs> uh <laughs> How did they become your favorite? Did you just like, did, is it just because they're, they're, they're beautiful to look at? Is it because there's something really fascinating about them that no other creature has? Yeah, all the above. Um, it's one of those things, like I went to the beach as a kid and we see sea stars and the typical things, but I never knew what a nudibranch was until I even moved to Seattle um, over a decade ago. And once you find out about them, it's like you're hooked because it's, it's like they have a, have a, um, um, not a cult's not the right word, but they have um they have a huge following. Like once you know a nudibranch, you're a fan. Um, I mean they're amazing to look at. They're they're hard to find. They're not always super abundant, so it's kind of like a um it's kind of you know like looking for Pokemon. <laughs> um, and their life histories are fascinating. Some of them they're all hermaphrodites, and so they have very interesting sex lives. Some of them are cannibals. Some of them um steal the singing the stinging cells from anemones, and they ingest it into their own bodies and then they have these finger-like serrata on their back and that deters fish and other things from eating nudibranchs sorry they can absorb <laughs> uh, yeah what, sorry. explain that again they can do what they so they eat the sea anemones and they you know sea anemones have the, the stinging uh, tentacles so they right. they eat the cells and they go into their digestive system and their digestive system actually runs up into these finger-like serrata on their backs and so they like they just they steal them and then they use them for their own. It's incredible. So these things that they absorb from the sea anemones, if I'm saying that correctly, mm -hmm. uh, they act as a sort of uh, venom. Yeah, like yeah. yeah. I mean, they can't. Okay, there's one That's that can wild. actually hurt humans, but they they can't hurt humans. But they can deter fish if they take a you know a mouthful and get some stinging cells in their mouths. They're gonna spit them out again. Yeah, I think and you're converting me. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't cool. know. Yeah, I don't know a lot. One of the reasons why I created this whole podcast was to, you know, interview people, especially people I meet online, but you know, scientists, artists, historians, and things like that, and ask them the questions I've been wanting to pester them with on Twitter <laughs> forever, including this one. And I didn't I honestly didn't know that about sea slugs. Yeah, and I've started a new uh, Twitter account called the Nudibranch Appreciation Society, and I'm just using that <laughs> to tweet out tweet out stuff about nudibranchs. And then I've started a new section on my website, um, introducing new a new nudibranch each week. And these are nudibranchs that you find? No, these are just ones that I've I've I started painting them, doing watercolors um, at the beginning of the pandemic because it was just something soothing to do, and I, I accumulated quite a lot of nudibranch paintings, so I'm using those. Um, to kind of introduce the nudibranchs from around the world. <laughs> amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so this is the Nudibranch Appreciation Society. Now, mm -hmm. you said earlier that nudibranchs are all sea slugs? Yes, that's correct. But not all sea slugs are nudibranchs. Right. There are some other groups. There's um, there's some like the sea hares, the really giant ones that like look like bunnies. Um, and there's some, uh, several different orders. Um, the taxonomies changed, so my books are a bit outdated. So I, it's kind of all jumbled up right now. <laughs> but the, yeah, there's different groups of sea slugs. Well, that was actually my next my next question, which is, how do you do your research? <laughs> Meticulously, I use I, I read a lot, so I have tons of reference books. Um, but because taxonomy especially changes so quickly, there's some really good online resources, especially for um, nudibranchs because there's worms which is the world registry of marine species and that keeps an up-to-date um, database on all the current names because I, I have a giant nudibranchs of the world book and when i look it up half the time the names um, change so yeah it's hard to keep track um, and there's also iNaturalist which keeps track of of all the different current names um, yeah iNaturalist yeah. is really cool yeah it's a great resource and do you collaborate with um, other people in the field? Do you connect with uh, scientists or maybe post to Twitter sometimes when you're not really sure? 
Oh yeah, definitely. I will. Um, there's certain people I know on Twitter who like. There's a spider person. There's a, a you know stream. Well, Marianne, I think you interviewed her. <laughs> um, I did. Um, yeah, there's different people that I know. If I have a question about something new to Brinks, I have there's um, Allison down in um, and Reba, Rebecca Fay um, down in California Academy of Sciences. But yeah, there's, this, there's lots of Twitter people and it's just easy to get an answer. Very cool. And I know that uh, another one of your favorite creatures is the dragonfly. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> Want to tell me a little bit about the dragonfly? <laughs> I have. It was when I think I was down in Eugene going to school. There was Eugene has a huge wetlands, and so I'd go out there and, and photograph dragonflies. Um, and so I've just been enamored with them. They're kind of a gateway. Like you start with birds, and then you're like, oh, dragonflies are kind of like birds. And so you start watching them, and then pretty soon you're like, oh, I got to you know learn all the species and everything about them. And then when I moved to Seattle, we're very lucky to have one of the world's leading experts on dragonflies in Seattle, Dennis Paulson. And he's often teaching classes and leading walks and stuff. So I got to know him. And pretty soon I was like <laughs> watching dragonflies and learning everything about him. And then um, my peak moment was when I was in the Arboretum here and I saw a dragonfly I didn't recognize. And I took a picture and I came back home and looked it up and I sent it to, to Dennis. And I said, I think this is a four spotted skimmer. He's like, you're right, it is. It's the first documentation in Seattle. <laughs> no way, that's cool closest I've come to finding a new species, but you know, good enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, Kelly, can I just read an excerpt from your book? Yes, of course. Okay, so this is the chapter called Dragons in the City. Um, adult dragonflies have a number of ways of catching prey. They have spines lining their legs and some dragons hold their legs down, creating a net-like basket of legs and spines to catch prey. Other times they catch prey with their feet. So the question I had in regards to that was, do dragonflies do this in midair? Yes, they do. They do most things in midair, including mating. Um, but yeah, they have the best, um, among the best eyesight in the whole insect kingdom. And they have, uh, they're the best flyers. Pretty clearly, hands down, I would say, because um, they can go backwards, forwards, up and down, and really, really fast. So that combination makes them really, really deadly in the air. Yeah, dragonflies seem to always be flying. I've never been able to photograph one holding still. There, there are a few. It depends on, like, darners hardly ever land, except maybe um, when they're mating. But some, like the skimmers, will often find, they like a perch, and they'll, uh, they're kind of like birds that, that hawk. They, they'll sit on one perch and then go out and grab something and come back. Um, some of the meadowhawks do that. Um, so if you can find their favorite perches, then you could get great shots of them. You just have to find ah, those perches. That's a pro, that's a pro tip, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so what happens to them in the rain? How do they fly in the rain, or do they? I don't think they do so much. What they tend to do, especially like when they're <clears throat> just emerging and they're still very, <clears throat> excuse me, tender, they will go fly into a forest area <clears throat> to find shelter. So okay. yeah, they'll probably hide. <laughs> So they'll hide like under a leaf or a strong leaf or something. Mm -hmm. Or just, you know, in the forest where there's fewer <clears throat> drops coming down. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So your book, Nature Obscura, a, hit, a City's Hidden Natural World. When did you write this? Um, I started, oh gosh, about three years ago. <laughs> and it took me about three years to, well, thereabouts anyway. <clears throat> so yeah, I was working on it for about three years. Okay, and you have some really good illustration as well. Yeah, that was the uh, the illustrator um, Zoe Keller from Portland did those. Okay, yeah, I wanted to give her a shout out too because the book cover is just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and the book the book itself is so eloquently written, Kelly. And I really like the format that you've chosen, which is essentially you break it up between seasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the chapters are pretty much diary format, which uh, I, what I like about how you've written this is that you've written it in such a way where it's half education and half very personal experience. Mm -hmm. And so I have a, a quick little question about that. What is your favorite season? Oh, definitely fall. <laughs> Why? Um, I hate the heat of the summer as I'm sitting here sweating right now. <clears throat> and 
it's the time it's like that time of transformation between the horrible summer and you get that nice relief of the cool weather the fall leaves start to come down and change color it's also a good time for slime molds and um the like the shorebirds and all the the marine birds start to come back um it's just really like really magical time it's it's very peaceful and pretty and i like everything about it Actually, it's also my favorite season, so we can high five on that from afar. (laughs) So the fall, the fall period, what's interesting is that I picked up a microscope last year. And so I started observing microscopic life and how it changes throughout the seasons. Mm -hmm. And in the fall and in the spring, there's, um, you know, Signora, which is just one of my favorite, uh, my favorite pond creatures, I guess we could call them. And so I wanted to know in what what transitions do you see when it comes to the the creatures that live in an urban environment in the fall? What what kind of transitions happen? Um, well, that's interesting. I, I think I mentioned the the birds, but there's a lot of um, you can always tell when fall is coming because the the crows start to migrate to their roost uh, during the summertime. They stay near their nests, and the first sign of fall for me is usually when I look out the window at night because they go right over our house um, in Seattle. And it's just usually, you know, a few here and then their numbers keep growing and growing until it gets to be thousands of them flying over every night um, to go to the roost. That's a favorite. And and also the like all the ducks and all those water birds start to arrive again. Um, the ospreys go away. The swallows all go away. Um, and then it's it's a really fun time to start looking in leaves because all the decomposers start and the spiders come out and um it's the best time to dig around the leaves for everything that was kind of hiding when it was dry, like the woodlouse and um, centipedes and all the fun, you know, things <laughs> that come out in the fall. Well, I'm actually glad that you mentioned spiders because you do have, um, I don't know if it's a full, ch- I can't remember if it's a full chapter, but you did write about the fear of spiders, mm-hmm. which I found really fascinating because I was actually terrified of spiders until probably maybe it's only been two years now where actually if I find a spider, it lives. <laughs> See, that's good. You know? it's, 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 it, I mean, it's not easy to overcome, but it is, it's possible to overcome being scared of them. Yeah. And, and how in your book, you were saying that they don't really know yet what causes the fear of spiders or why we're scared of spiders. Right. Right. There's, I mean, there's different theories, but if you see a kid, they're, I mean, a young kid, they're generally not scared of spiders. They're curious you know, curious about them. It's usually something that's taught. But at the same time, it's like I've taught my daughter that spiders are really cool and interesting. And yet she still has nightmares about spiders. So it's it's an interesting dynamic where, you know, what is going on in our heads? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I wonder if there's some sort of evolutionary, you know, cause behind it or something, you know? Like yeah. maybe that's why we're also scared of tigers or big bears or something you know right. <laughs> i wonder if uh, spiders and snakes fit into that as well possibly but i mean like i said in the book at this point in time it's, it's detrimental because people crash their cars because they see a spider on their you know visor and <laughs> and there's i mean we should be that scared of of cars or dogs because they're much more of a threat to us as you know as a modern human than a spider exactly now, you mentioned uh, the creatures that that feed on rotting wood and things like that. What what are some examples? And can you just um, give us an idea of how to find them, perhaps? Like maybe take pictures or? Um, so things on rotting wood, it's it's very similar to going to a, to a tide pool. I always take a little flashlight. I have like a little waterproof one because, you know, it's Seattle, it rains a lot. Um, and I would just <laughs> find a good rotten log and just shine the light all over it and just be patient because if you go too fast, you're like, oh, there's nothing here. But these things are small, like centipedes and springtails, um, woodlouse. And I always like to think, find things on the ground and kind of look under them very carefully and always you know, put them back how you found them because there's, it's a home for somebody. Um, but yeah, just like just poking around and looking under things. If there's some loose bark, kind of peek underneath it with your flashlight. Um, and yeah, just like look slowly because they're so tiny and they're so easy to overlook. It must be a blast going on a hike with you. <laughs> I don't know. If, it's not a lot of hiking. It's more just crawling around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, now, because your book is about the city's hidden natural world, what kind of creatures can we find on really, you know, in really urban environments and like concrete? Mm-hmm. What kind of creatures inhabit? Now, for most people who follow me, they know already that I've found hundreds of tardigrades and rotifers on my own balcony. Mm-hmm. Can you think of other creatures that people could find on a concrete balcony or in, uh, in the cracks between the sidewalk? Oh, yeah. There, the, I mean, the sidewalk is a good one because um, there's often a lot of ants there. And then the ants uh, will bring in like the flickers because flickers, which are woodpeckers. So you think they'd be on a tree, but they're often seen on sidewalks, just poking into the cracks in the sidewalk, um, looking for the ants, which they eat. Um, and there's always moss. Um, and lichens, lichens grow in the weirdest places. You can find them all over tombstones and graveyards. Um, and that's interesting because the tombstones actually mimic um, like rocky, bouldery uh, fields and natural habitats. So the lichens are just like, oh, we like this. Um, and, there, and there's just tons of little invertebrates. Like, um, um, well, you mentioned the tardigrades and rotifers and, and um, I don't even know them all yet. You know, there's there's so many tiny creatures and I'm still learning them too. Um, Do you have a microscope? Yeah, I've got two. I've got a dissecting scope and then an actual microscope too. So yeah, I use those a lot. What kind of stuff do you look at uh, under your microscopes? Everything. <laughs> um, any dead bugs that I find out in the yard, they, they always end up under the microscope. Mosses, lichens. Uh, when I learned how to identify lichens, you have to use a microscope to identify most of them. Um, uh, pond water, the mosses from my roof, which I, I find the tardigrades in, um, slime molds. Again, that's something you can have to identify under a microscope because the spores look different. Um, yeah, basically anything <laughs> I put under my microscope. You did mention in your book also that you built yourself a pond. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that and what did, what did you learn from that? Did you, first of all, did you research how to construct pond or did you just like dig a hole? No, I, yeah, no, I did. I did research it. Um, part of my landscape architecture training <laughs> to figure out how things are constructed. Um, and there's, we have a really, really good book here in the Northwest um, about creating wildlife habitat. And so it has some excellent diagrams. So I tried to just like take everything, every piece of it, um, because you can, you can create like a pond for fish, but that's not a good pond for invertebrates, which is what I really wanted to find. And so I, I dug it with different depths and different substrates and different sorts of edging. Um, so it would be a good home for invertebrates. Okay. And this is so that you can just study them? Yeah. Watch them and study them and just, you know, create habitat. So, I mean, there's so few ponds and wetlands in the cities anymore. Everybody gets rid of them because they think they're going to be mosquito breeding grounds or they're just yes. too much work or they just want fish and fish eat all the invertebrates. So. So what have you learned since you've had your pond? Oh, I've, oh, so the very first time, I and mean, when we dug it and put the hose in it and I was standing there it was just barren I mean it's just all dirt around it with a few scraggly plants that I'd added and I was just standing there and all of a sudden it's like pew 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 and I'm like what things just hitting in the water I didn't know what it was and I looked closer and it was um they were back swimmers they're like actively colonizing the pond as I stood there (laughs) and I didn't even so they just showed up yeah they just like because they fly and I didn't realize that they flew (laughs) and they just like shot out of the sky into the pond and they started swimming around and pretty soon um a few weeks later I had a whole ton of babies swimming around in there so you know it did its job (laughs) that's amazing i I was talking with uh, Dr. Stephen Thackeray, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's an ecologist from the UK, and he was telling me that's exactly what he did. He constructed a pond, and he said, I didn't have to do anything right. for the creatures to come. <laughs> no, yeah, they just they just find it. Uh, it's incredible. <laughs> do you have to maintain it? Um, I do a little bit because um, somehow I got this invasive water fern in it, and it spreads over the... In fact, it's giving me headaches now. It's um, currently spreading right now. The pond's drying out, so I keep trying to scoop it out. And every time I think I've got it, it <laughs> escapes and it just keeps spreading again. Um, but that's about all I do. I don't do a whole lot else. It's pretty self-sustaining at this point. Very cool. And you're in Seattle. And so how are the winters there? Wet. <laughs> we get a lot of drizzle. Um, it depends on the year, but sometimes we'll get a lot of freezing days. Some 
once in a while snow, not a lot of snow, but mostly just a lot of drizzle. Because one of the things that really surprised me in, in your book was the uh, mention of the hummingbirds in the wintertime, which I don't think I've ever seen hummingbirds, at least not in Canada, in the winter. No, the, yeah, the Anna's hummingbirds are a recent arrival, um, which is in just the last few decades, um, because of our own <laughs> expansion and plants and feeding them. And they didn't used to come this far north, especially, and they didn't ever winter, overwinter. Um, and now they're all the way up to Canada, up to Vancouver, overwintering there. Amazing. I hope they I hope they come here, but I also hope <laughs> that they don't because that'll be like a sign of climate change or something. Right. <laughs> so, which which actually leads me to my next question. How do you find do you find uh because you've been doing this for a while, do you find that things have changed? Yes and no. Um Seattle is such a highly managed landscape. We have Lake Washington, which is the second largest lake in the whole state. But because it has a dam on it, it's managed for boat traffic. And so the water levels are in natural, you know, in the natural world, they would be drying out during the summertime and really low during drought years. But instead, they're opposite. They go up higher in the summer because so, they want to raise the water levels because so much water is lost every time they open the locks to let the boats out. And so it's completely opposite. It's lower in the wintertime and then it's higher in the summertime. So it's hard to get a gauge on on anything like that because it's like, well, this should be drier now. Well, <laughs> it's, you know. Do you notice uh, more or fewer creatures or anything like that? No, again, it's it's very down to management. There, there are fewer dragonflies in the wetlands now, but a lot of that is because the wetlands, um, the plantings have become so tall that they're shading out the ponds. Um, and that's part of the management again. <laughs> Okay, that's just very curious. And uh, lastly, in regards to your book, you did uh, write a, a little bit about what kind of tools that you use. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, what kind of tools do you bring with you on a hike, for example? So I always, the first thing I say is you don't really need anything other than, you know, your sense of curiosity, because really to go out to be a naturalist, all you need is just your, your eyes and your ears and whatever senses you possess. Um, but the second thing I say is most important <laughs> are good uh, shoes, waterproof shoes, waterproof layers, because there's nothing worse than being out in the cold, windy, with wet jeans. Um, and then my most frequently used tools are my my flashlight, which I've mentioned. And then the other tool that I never leave home without is my little hand loop. So it's a teeny, tiny hand lens. It's like a magnifying glass, but it's really tiny and it's much more powerful than a magnifying glass. And you just hold it up. It's like, you know, like when you go to the jeweler and they look at stuff with their jeweler. Yeah, it's the same thing. So you, you use that to look at slime molds or lichens or whatever else I find out in the field. Um, and then I usually carry some old like tins, like mint tins to collect things in. Like if I want to bring a slime mold back to try to identify it or I find some dead bugs or whatever. Um, just like little collecting tins. Um, and then my camera, of course, my camera and some different lights. But that's about all the essentials that I take with me. Then everything else is just bonus stuff on top of that. Do you get a lot of mosquitoes out there? Sometimes there's a wetlands not far from my house. And yeah, the <laughs> there's certain times of the year where you don't want to walk slowly through the wetlands. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, do you, do you bring a bug jacket during your expeditions out there? Uh, no, I just mostly have a rain jacket. Um, the, they're not that bad. It's generally speaking in most places, mosquitoes are not that bad here. Not like, you know, in Scotland or up North in Canada. <laughs> in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really bad. Yeah. It's really bad. Uh, yeah. I'm originally from Northern Ontario. So we have, uh, you know, the fly season and then we have mosquito season. Yeah. So, and then we have snow. So, I mean, that's, that's life up here. And we, mosquitoes aren't bad. We don't have hardly any midges or biting flies. We don't even really have ticks here. So it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty easy to go out here. There's not much that can, you know, bother you. Fascinating. But you're in a pretty interesting spot. Yeah. Pretty interesting location. Don't tell anyone. How are things? <laughs> yeah. Well, too late now. <laughs> um, how have things been with the pandemic? How have you been? Oh, terrible. <laughs> uh, 
first it was fine because I'm like, oh, you know, I got time to go out. We can go to the parks. We can go for walks because, you know, being outside is still fine. But then everybody else had the same idea. <laughs> right. So suddenly all the places that I retreated to during the weekday morning to go look for slime molds or walk through the woods in peace is now like just stuffed full of people. So I've lost all my like little retreat places. And for some reason, everybody at home has decided that this is the prime time to do home improvement projects. So every time I try yes. to go sit by my pond, there's like five major projects on my block alone. So somebody's doing siding today. There's another house adding a new extension. Somebody else was tearing up their concrete in their backyard. It's just been like, <laughs> it's been awful. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's terrible to live in an urban center when things like this happen. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, something that my partner and I are actually, you know, considering perhaps moving to the country at this point. Is that something that's crossed your mind? As a matter of fact, yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the, our neighbors, and even on the best of times, our, we have noisy neighbors. There, there's a contractor, there are people who play music. It's just, and noise is, is my sensory issue. I just, I can't handle noise very well. I, if it's quiet, I'm fine. But if there's noise, it just, it just, debilitates my I just can't do anything um right so yeah so we we thought about well, hey maybe I'll just get a cabin somewhere and I can go there for the summer and then avoid all the noise and then <laughs> we're just like no that's it's, I think we just have to move now <laughs> somewhere where there's like five acres and a house and you know some sense of quiet I think there's going to be a mass exodus from the cities actually in the in the next few years yeah I think that's already started <laughs> yes yes indeed and so now I'm curious a little bit more about you. Other than nature, other than art and photography, <laughs> what other interests do you have? Do you do you uh, do you watch movies, for example? Um, I'm a huge anime geek. I do love um, anime movies, like all the Miyazaki films. I, I was just about to yeah. say. <laughs> I mean, that, that's all nature related too, though. So I guess that doesn't count. <laughs> um, I started practicing kendo at the beginning beginning of the year, which is funny because I did it for three months in the dojo and now I've been doing it all on zoom so it's a very interesting way to learn kendo um kendo is the art of what so it's it's a martial art but it's um the martial art of the samurai so we we fight with um shin eyes which are bamboo swords um I'm a super beginner so don't ask me too much about it but yeah so I'm learning how to do um do kendo um and it's a lot of fun. It's really cool. Yeah, it's really outside my comfort zone, but it, I loved it the first time I saw it. Um, so I'm, is it hard physically? Is it exhausting? It is exhausting, but they they say like the first time I went there that you do not have to be young, which I'm not, <laughs> or super fit. That a lot of the practitioners are quite a bit older than I am, um, and you can do it until you're you know you're very old. So it's 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 gentle, but it's also um, yeah, it's very hard. Um, Physically, it's it, especially when you start wearing the the armor, um, which I don't yet because I haven't got that far. But yeah, it's it's Ooh. yeah, it's very good. <laughs> that's gonna be cool when you get to the armor and you get right. to the, the weaponry. That's gonna be a lot of fun. <laughs> and I just started, to, you know, get to hit people, and then the pandemic happened. And <laughs> oh man, yeah, I, I hear you. I I do. Uh, well, before the pandemic, I was doing a lot of boxing. Oh wow. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, it's it's that kind of uh, exertion and and being able to hit a bag or being right. able to spar with someone, it 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 really releases something, right? Right, <laughs> right. and then in kendo, you you you're supposed to yell. You have your kia, which is your your like your warrior spirit, and so there's a lot of yelling, which is not something I do because I'm a total wallflower, and so <laughs> it's oh. it's very yeah, it's very far outside my comfort zone. But by the right before the pandemic, I was I was like I was yelling. <laughs> Well, that's cool. Did that? Did you find that liberating as someone who doesn't normally yell? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, yeah, it was. It was very fun to like, yeah, and then <laughs> charge at somebody and hit him in the head. <laughs> well, I think what's really cool is that if you do end up moving out to the country, you can yell as much as you want. Right. <laughs> I mean, I could now, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you could. Yeah. But then, you know, there would be consequences. Right. <laughs> So looking a little bit forward to the future here, what are your future plans? Well, I'm working on a new book proposal um, on Nudibranchs, <laughs> um, which is, I know, shocking. And I'm not shocked at no. all. 
And then we have um, we have this Invertifest coming up this weekend. We've been working on that, yes. expanding that every time. Um, so basically we started it, has it been about a year now? Um, there's three of us on Twitter and we are all big invertebrate nerds and we're co always complaining that all the vertebrates get all the attention. They get all the <laughs> airtime, all the, you know, oh, everybody loves the tigers and the bears and all the boring stuff. And so we decided to start our own thing for invertebrates because not only, you know, do we love invertebrates and they're fun, but they're, it's, I mean, they're incredibly important to the ecosystem. We, we would literally not be here without invertebrates. So we wanted to give them their own limelight. So we started this Invertifest. Basically, it was just a weekend where people everywhere just went out to find your local invertebrates, whether it's, you know, bees or octopus or whatever, and share them on Twitter. And so we've kind of, it's been evolving a bit every time we, we run it. And uh, this time we started doing it with having different scientists take over our Twitter account for a day and just kind of tweet about whatever they were working on or their study subjects. Um, and we did a couple like online um, Twitter interviews with different people and then the big event is coming up again this weekend. Um, so I do that and then the, the Nudibranch Appreciation Society and you know just working on my website and all the other stuff. <laughs> Just to clarify, when you say this weekend, because this is going to be pre-recorded, right. uh, it is uh, the dates for Invertifest are what dates? Uh, August 21st to 23rd. Okay, so that will have passed by the time this episode airs, but it is a yearly event, correct? We're doing it quarterly, so about every three months we schedule a new one. Um, so yeah, Okay, so, so people have to look forward to that. Yeah, definitely. And we try to do it year okay. round because, of course, when it's winter here, it's summer in the southern hemisphere. And also because there are still cool insects and bugs and invertebrates that we can find even during the winter. So we want to, you know, kind of challenge the perception that there's nothing to see in the wintertime. So, yeah, so we keep running give me, it. Give me an example of that. Uh, let's see. So in the wintertime here, the tides are low at nighttime. And so I like to go to the beach at, in the dark. Um, and I, when I go, I take a black light. And some of the organisms, like some of the sea anemones, they glow under the black light. So it's a lot of fun to go when you wouldn't think to go to the beach during the, you know, like 10 o'clock at night when it's pitch black. Um, but it's kind of a, a different way to go see the beach um, with a black light. So it's fun. That's ingenious, actually. <laughs> Could I, if I went to the East Coast, so let's say the Atlantic Ocean. So let's say the coast of Nova, Nova Scotia mm -hmm. or PEI or whatever. And if I brought a black light, are you saying that I could potentially see some creatures oh, yeah. on, on the beach? Yeah, there's like, and it's just really mm. random. Like some sea anemones, like I saw these dog whelks and they had like this one little glowing patch on them, which I have no idea why. Um, yeah, just looking at, and some, some shrimp and some crabs and some do and some don't. I have no idea why, but. Yeah, there's you can do it in your backyard too because there are some mushrooms that glow <clears throat> and some scorpions and just different things that glow randomly in the dark. Who knows why? I am very motivated now to go get myself a black light. Do you have any recommendations? Oh, no, I just got one online. It was just a like it looked like a okay. flashlight, but it's just a black light. Yeah, they people I don't know why people buy them, but there's tons of them out there. <laughs> well, I, I heard that you can actually use them with rocks too mm. rocks and minerals. Apparently, you can. I don't know, you can make them shine and you can tell what kind of mineral it is. I don't know a whole lot yet. Oh, that's but... cool. I haven't tried that yet. <laughs> it's on the list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of which, what, what's on your list of things that you want to learn? Because it seems that you're always learning something new. I, I've been really interested lately in folklore. <clears throat> and so I'm interested in the history of, of some of the different beliefs of animals and plants and um and things we think are silly today like well how could you think that a manatee was a mermaid but there's a really interesting you know like background to, to either a mis misinterpretation of or mistranslation of something or something that somebody saw and described it but the person who drew it hadn't seen it before so they just took their best stab at it it's just a really interesting um dynamic of the folklore of nature and you know our our dismissal of it is just silly but there's often a lot of <clears throat> truth behind it um like the belief of different plants that could heal and it's just I don't know, it's just very interesting to me I, I like that that bridge of folklore and nature that sounds fascinating <laughs> honestly that would actually make for a good book yeah there's something my <clears throat> next next book is going to have something to do with that 
Oh, okay. Got... Well, I definitely want to have you back on when for because now now you've got two books that you're you're kind of working. Well, on, there's right? actually a third one too. But <laughs> <laughs> what's the third one? Tell me the about it. The third one is uh, more focused on slime molds again. Okay. But much more in depth. There's there's some different aspects that I touched in on the chapter uh, in my book that I I got really really obsessed with, and I want to when we can travel again someday um, dive into those a bit deeper. So that is actually my 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 last question, which is, where do you want to go once once you're able to travel again? Yeah. What kind of place? Where do you want to go explore around the world? I want to go back to Finland. <laughs> I love Finland. Yeah, I love Finland. Um, I've been there three times now, and I love Finland. And Scotland's my second favorite. But all those northern landscapes, I don't know what it is, but I just I'm completely enamored with the the locks and the the just the like the birch forests and the heaths and all those and the fjords of course um this is something really magical about those northern landscapes and there's just so much i haven't seen yet and i'd like to go back and really explore it's just fascinating i mean finland's cold it's yeah i mean it's it's a winter country but i went up north and i saw the most amazing dragonflies there and like how do they live it's just a, such a short summertime and such a long long cold winter it's incredible that are they you, are so successful. So, sorry, I was going to ask if you're in contact with people in, in Finland. Like, Do you have like a naturalist network where you guys can exchange information until you get to go back? No, I have a friend who lives there. Um, I wouldn't call her a naturalist. Um, but no, I, 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 there's a few people on Twitter, uh, uh, Finns on Twitter that I've connected with a little bit. Um, I'd love to meet more, but no, it's, and it's hard to to learn about Finland because most of their books don't get translated. So there's a lot of, I went to the bookshop there and like, oh, well, there's a book, a whole book on parasites, but it's not been translated to English. And oh. I can't, I mean, I, I know a tiny bit of Finnish, but not enough to read a book, especially about parasites. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Listen, Kelly, uh, this has been amazing. It's been fascinating, not only to be able to ask you questions. It's one of the, the things that I've always vowed uh, which is to never be afraid to contact one of your favorite authors <laughs> and to, you know, be able to ask them questions. And I love what you've written. And I'm really, really looking forward to your future novel or future novels or future books, yeah, I should say. Both. <laughs> um, I did see, however, that, that you are writing a fiction as well. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote a novel about a pirate naturalist. I'm revising it and I've already written a half of a sequel to it, too, because I got into my head and I just wrote it it was weird <laughs> just wild man just wild honestly I cannot wait I'm gonna have a whole section on my bookcase just for your work so <laughs> thank you thank you for uh, coming on the podcast thanks for answering all of my curious questions about nature and creatures and just to tell everybody that they can follow you on the web can you give, give us your website again yeah it's metrofieldguide.com Okay, and on Twitter, it's Kelly Brenner, correct? Yep. All right. So, yeah, thanks for joining me, and I hope that uh, you'll return. Yeah, and thank you for having me. That was fun. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>